Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 7th, 2017. Coming up, an interview with Cy Montgomery and Liz Thomas, co-authors of Tamed and Untamed, Close Encounters of the Animal Kind. These are some amazing stories of their experiences with animals throughout the animal kingdom. look at some of the recent news in science. The idea of gateway drugs has gotten a lot of press lately with multiple states legalizing pot and the widespread abuse of opioids. Alcohol has often been fingered as a gateway substance to these other drugs. A recent study by a large multi-institutional group of researchers has confirmed this idea in rats and identified the probable neural mechanism. When alcohol was given to rats, the animals later were more susceptible to the addictive effects of cocaine. These effects were measured as amount of drug taken over the course of a day. It was basically a lot. And also measured was how hard rats were working, were willing to work to get the cocaine. Turns out that alcohol-primed rats will work almost twice as hard as the control rats, pushing the lever 560 times versus 310 for the control rats. Finally, rats given alcohol before cocaine exposure were willing to tolerate more pain to continue with their cocaine, enduring twice as many foot shocks to press the lever to deliver the drug. So what's going on with the alcohol pretreatment? Long-term alcohol consumption activates a mechanism in brain cells that breaks down key enzymes involved in epigenetic changes. Just what does that mean, epigenetic changes? Well, those enzymes that are turned off by alcohol can make subtle changes to your genes by adding tags that turn genes on or off. In the case of alcohol in these experiments, genes in a brain region involved in reward were affected, leading to greater motivation for cocaine consumption. This work was published last week in the journal Science Advances. DNA sequencing provides answers to a variety of questions ranging from paternity to disease risk to crop productivity. A recent and intriguing application of the technology examines our ancient ancestors. A study published last week in the journal Science by a large international consortium shed light on the social network of modern humans from about 30,000 years ago. These modern humans were hunter-gatherers living in western Russia. The researchers sequenced the genomes of four individuals that had been buried together. Their DNA revealed that they came from a small population and were genetically similar but not closely related. In other words, they were part of a single social group that was part of a larger mating network. This kind of population structure is similar to that of contemporary hunter-gatherers. The lack of close inbreeding, which can cause serious genetic disorders, could explain why modern humans became the successful species we are today. And on the local science scene, tonight at 6.30, the Denver Café Scientifique will host Dr. Annie Caldwell from the University of Colorado, who will give a talk titled, Are Humans Born to Run? Revolutionary Perspectives on Physical Activity Across the Lifespan. In this presentation, Dr. Caldwell will focus on a growing problem. Two-thirds of adults in the U.S. are overweight or obese, and rates among women and children continue to rise. 
modifying behaviors that improve weight management and health, like physical activity and eating well, are critical for preventing and treating obesity and associated chronic diseases. This Cafe SciTalk will focus on physical activity from a novel perspective that is grounded in evolutionary theory and incorporates health and social psychology, anthropological fieldwork, and behavioral endocrinology. This framework suggests that physical exertion entails costs and benefits that have been shaped by natural selection, are sex-specific, and change over the course of the lifespan, and vary according to environmental cues of resource availability and predictability and mortality risks. Wow, sounds great. That's the Denver Cafe Scientifique tonight at 6.30 p.m., but you can arrive before 6 p.m. if you want to order something to eat. The location is the Blake Street Tavern at 2301 Blake Street near Coors Field. For more information, visit cafesicolorado.org. That's all one word, cafesicolorado. And finally, also tonight at 7.30 p.m. at the Boulder Bookstore, author Sarah Scholes will speak about and sign her new book, Making Contact, Jill Tarter and the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. The book looks at the science behind CEDI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and its pioneer, Dr. Jill Tarter. Dr. Tarter was the inspiration for the main character in Carl Sagan's book, Contact, and Jodie Foster played that role in the 1997 movie. Sarah Skull's book dives into the science, philosophy, and politics of CD and reveals the fascinating figure at the center of this profound frontier of scientific investigation. That's tonight at 7.30 at the Boulder Bookstore. Back in July, Sarah Skull's, the author, was a guest on How on Earth. So you can go to howonearthradio.org to hear that past episode if you have ever gazed at the stars and planets and ask the big existential questions such as, are we alone? I'm not scared of lions and tigers and bears, but I'm scared of the I'm not scared of the I have authors, Cy Montgomery and Liz Thomas, on the phone from their home in New Hampshire. They recently published Tamed and Untamed, Close Encounters of the Animal Kind, a collection of fascinating essays on more animals than you can imagine. Welcome to the show, Liz and Cy. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, great to have you. I'm excited to talk about some of your essays, but maybe we could start with a little background from you both. Liz, how did you get into writing about animals? Oh, I... That's a good question. I mean, I've always wanted, I've always been fascinated. I, incidentally, my name is Elizabeth Marshall Thomas. I write under that name, and uh, n- not Liz Thomas, I, although I should have written under Liz. <laughs> she signs book after book after book. <laughs> Um, and I've always, uh, I was born into a family with a n- big Newfoundland dog and two cats. And the Newfoundland was, was like my nanny. She wouldn't let me and my brother do things she didn't want us to do. She was very strict. When I was standing up, oh, I would be four, maybe, or five. I would be, she would be a little taller than me, and then I, we could see eye to eye. So, I mean, you didn't mess with the dog like that. <laughs> so she, she was, was your mom in a way. She was very motherly. She was like a mother to us. So I've always felt I'm very easy and comfortable with, with other species. It doesn't have to be a person. Sure. Yeah, and, and Cy, how about you? Prepare. Well, I, I, too, grew up with a dog in the family who was my older sister, essentially. I was an, um, an only child, and um, 
uh, like most young girls, I wanted to be like my older, glamorous sister. But she was a Scottish Terrier. And that's essentially what I did. Um, I, I always dreamed of going to the woods, running away with Molly, our Scottish Terrier, so that she could teach me the ways of the wild animals. And although Molly's long gone, I've kind of lived out that dream. And uh. for a living, I go and and try to learn the ways of wild animals. And most of my observation skills, I think I learned from an excellent teacher who was a dog. Oh, that's fantastic. And you both have traveled to so many amazing places. So let's just dive in and get a few examples from the book. I, I loved it that you covered the entire animal kingdom, you know, from domestic animals down to invertebrates, which most people kind of forget about. And in I fact, know, and most of the world is composed of right, invertebrates. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So uh, just maybe each of you talk about some of your favorite stories and give our listeners um, a taste of what's in the book. And and just by way of introduction, the book is such a fantastic format for essays. They're, they're kind of two-minute essays. It's so easy to just pick up the book, read a single essay without getting sidetracked, and then put it down and come back to it. So maybe, Sai, you could go first and talk oh, about yeah, your, sure. maybe one of your favorite animals. Well, um, one of the things that I often read as Liz and I go around on the book tour is, is actually it starts with an electric eel. Um, Liz and I were together during the the, uh, the moment that I saw an electric eel dreaming. Mm. And there's an essay in, in the book right. called Do Animals Dream? And, you know, it, a lot of, of the impetus behind writing a book like this is the idea that you know, many scientists and philosophers for years have questioned whether animals have, quote-unquote, human cognitive abilities, whether they think, feel, and know. Do, do, they, do they dream? Do they have emotions? Do they anticipate the future? Can they imagine other minds? And invariably, both observation experience and uh, the science supports the fact they the unsurprising but delightful fact that they do. But here's what happened the day we saw the, the animal dream. Uh, we were at New England Aquarium, and the electric eel exhibit has a voltmeter that lights up whenever the electric eel is using his electricity to hunt or stun prey. But on this day, the eel was asleep. I was with the um, lead aquarist um, who knows the eel, has known the eel for many years, and he confirmed the eel was asleep. And yet, all of a sudden, this light flashed across the voltmeter. And so, what was going on? He's asleep. What's the electricity doing? Well, the eel was dreaming. And he was dreaming about what you would dream about if you were an electric eel, <laughs> hunting and stunning prey. And so this, this essay goes on to, to look at what else we know about other animals' dreams. And scientists have devised ways to see what animals are dreaming about because the brain will, um, on, will spike certain patterns um, when a bird, for example, is singing a, a suite of particular notes. And we know this from putting little electrodes on their tiny heads while they're awake. But when they're asleep... Birds dream of singing. And rats who work in a laboratory running mazes 
what do you suppose they dream about? <laughs> Running a maze. So that's always uh, that's always one of the ones that I usually read. That's kind of emblematic of of our work and some of the surprising and and fun things that we've seen. And one thing that struck me uh, in one of the early essays was that you commented on the evolutionary connection that we have to animals, and I love that because so many people are a little bit taken aback at the thought of animals, just as you're talking about maybe dreaming or planning or having some kind of consciousness, but especially in our closer vertebrate ancestor or relatives in the animal kingdoms, you know, we share so much of our brain structure that it's not surprising that we would share similar behavior patterns and even consciousness. Yeah, very much. That's, that's very true. Um, no, for a long time, Animals were thought to be, people were thought to be the only ones with consciousness, thoughts, memory, and so forth. And now that's been widely, totally debunked. Not everybody's caught on yet, but um, the scientists used to think that, 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 I mean, the the scientific position was that that animals did not have consciousness. Um, You can't prove what what kinds of thoughts if you even if your brain is ticking you can't really prove what kinds of thoughts exactly you're having and the, and so I, I don't know why this happened but it did and more and more now uh, oh, incidentally Franz Duval who is a, a very well known um, um, he's a scientist biologist um, primatologist he invented a word called anthropo denial because if anthropomorphism mm. means um, presenting an animal or a plant as if it had hum- human characteristics. Anthropodenial means presenting it as if it did not have human characteristics. And I think it's high time we began to listen to that word. Right, <laughs> and, right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and, and in so many of your essays, you debunk that idea, maybe not intentionally, but just by portraying the animals. Like, I, I love the, the chicken stories. There were a couple of stories about chickens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People think they're just, you know, walking vegetables or something. <laughs> chickens are, they're so smart. They remember a hundred faces easily. Um, they have a great sense of direction, much better than mine. Um, and they're, they're quite individual, as I know. I, I um, raised my baby chicks in my office. They, as tiny chicks, they, they sit on my sweater and in my lap and on my head. And, um, so as a result, I'm part of their, their flock. And then when they, they move outside, we love to hang out together. Um, and I've gotten to really appreciate things like the pecking order. It's more about order than about pecking. I have I have gotten to appreciate their different strategies in dealing with predators. I had one chicken. I write about chicken indestructible in the, in this uh, in this book. Um, who on a freezing cold winter night, this elderly hen of mine just disappeared, and I thought for sure that predator had gotten her. And I don't know what happened to her, but she appeared days later just fine in the freezing snow and i wondered where she'd gone later i had another one i haven't written about this but um her name is wavy comb and um last winter she was she was abducted by an owl 
And I know this because I could see where the owl's wing prints left their impression in the snow, and her feathers were left right next to where the owl swooped down. We have lots of owls here. I'm sure it was a barred owl. Well, that was the end of her, I was certain, until two weeks later, and this is the dead of winter, two weeks later, my my husband comes out of the writing studio out back and, and says, I think I hear one of your chickens out here. And it was wavy comb. She had somehow gotten away from that owl and spent two weeks making her way back to her house. They're geniuses. <laughs> well, we'll come back to that chicken story in just a minute. And to our listeners, if you're just tuning in now, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett, and I'm speaking with authors Cy Montgomery and Liz Thomas. Their essays on animal behavior crisscross the animal kingdom. So going back to chickens, they, like many other animals, have been shown in the last few years to really have their own language. And I love how one of your chickens had a name for you and would greet you by name when you came out into the yard. Yeah, that's actually, um, that was my friend Melissa Cowie, who has a brand new book out called How to Speak Chicken. And she she and I kind of figured out that's what the sound was, that the new sound that the chickens were making. They were calling her name. And then I started looking into it, and lots of different animals make up names for themselves or each other or other creatures and that just kind of blows my mind i mean the name dolphins for example have signature whistles and they can call out their own signature whistle saying oh it's me it's me over here they can also call out the name of another dolphin well dolphins are so brilliant everybody says (laughs) well what about what about chickens well chickens are doing it too as are prairie dogs as are Possibly, maybe everyone does this. Wolves do it. Yeah, Yeah, it would make sense for any animal that lives in a social group to be able to distinguish individuals. Yes, it does. Liz, you had um, studied wolves on Baffin Island. Um, I did, but it was a small group. So it was a um, a father and mother wolf and their two offsprings of the year before. And they were taking care of um, um, puppies in a den. But um, if one was at the den, there were only two, uh, two, <laughs> two others out there who would who would or three, three I guess um, who would be uh, who, who they would have names for. <laughs> mm. And but um, I didn't I didn't distinguish the names so much because they very seldom howled to. They they knew where each other were. They they only howled on on rare occasions for special reasons. Then they all howled together, but they just lived their lives uh, quietly. And what do you um, think they were doing when they were howling? Were they saying, "Here I am," or was it, "Wow, it's a full no, moon tonight"? No, no. The times they howled, were, I was there with some um, some other a couple of other researchers. I went off by myself to about five miles from the others where there was a den and watched the den. But when we came to the original spot, we we walked, as a matter of fact, from, for, I think it was about 70 miles to get to where we were. And we, so it was a pretty isolated place. That's why I point that out. Um, when we all arrived, there were four of us, and when we arrived, 
we were there, a, a, a wolf, two wolves, a mother wolf and her and a younger wolf, um, were were there because that was where they had a den, and um, the 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 mother wolf uh, ran away. The younger wolf didn't. He kind of he kind of uh, hesitated a lot, but finally he joined the others, and all of them howled. The, the, oh, the mother wolf then howled, um, or both of them, and then the then um, we we heard answering howls, and maybe an hour or so later they were all together at the den, and they all howled very very much, uh, and for quite a long time and perhaps others were joining them the ones who were howling perhaps others were joining them during that time but anyway a little later uh, there was nothing and the uh, the, the wolves had gone then they'd taken the babies and uh, the, the people who were there had been there before and they happened to know where the next den, where the other den was and so I went there and after that I heard almost I, I'd say I heard no howling they just lived their lives they didn't mind me. They 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 investigated me, but found that nothing to worry about, and uh, they just went on with their lives, and things were things were fine. But the, the, this this name thing would be would would be if if uh, if one of them if if one of them well perhaps there was a name thing in the early part, but I didn't I didn't I didn't realize that then. Anyway, and even in animals that don't vocalize, like one of your essays was on the giant Pacific octopus that recognized you when you put your hands. Or did she recognize you by sight, and then you put your hands in the water, and she could smell you? Yeah, when she, uh, I feel certain they they have good um, close up vision. They don't have great distance vision, but yeah, I'm sure she recognized me by sight, and we know they can recognize individual humans by sight because there's been experiments showing that, and that they have different feelings about different individuals. So um, I'm sure of that, but I'm also certain that she recognized my taste, and I'm, I also feel sure that she knew other people by taste and that people will taste differently under different circumstances. I've, I, the one time I've ever seen an octopus bite someone, it was an octopus who I knew well. She was a total sweetheart, and she bit somebody who she knew well. But this person, her name was Anna, um, who was a good friend of the octopus, whose name was Kali, had, was on different kinds of medications, and mm. she had just switched meds. And I think that the reason that Kali bit her, it didn't envenomate her. And the, the bite was not a bad bite. They can envenomate you if they choose, and, mm. and it's not a very nice thing when that happens. But I, I think Kali was like, oh, you taste really funny. I think I'm going to explore a little further. I'm going to give you a little pinch with my beak. <laughs> and that's what happened. Uh-huh. But, yeah, they totally, they totally recognize you, and um, they remember you even if you don't have contact for weeks, sometimes months. Well, we were focusing a lot on invertebrates because I love invertebrates. But just to inform our listeners, there are many, many fantastic stories of vertebrates, including lions and deer and, of course, cats and dogs, whole section on cats and dogs. And I especially loved the story about the rescue animals that put on the acrobatic performance. 
Oh, that was so fun. Liz and I went to that together. And yeah, that yeah, was just, Liz's essay, Abandoned yeah. Acrobat. Yeah, Liz, maybe talk about that chihuahua. That was remarkable. Well, it was an amazing production. The, the, uh, the dogs did things most people have never seen a dog do before. Uh, they, and they loved doing it. They couldn't wait for their cue to do it. They would run in, in zigzags around poles and j- jump over very high, bar- very high barriers, sailing over them. And one dog, a smallish dog, stood on her front feet with her hind legs in the air. She stood on her trainer's hand, and he lifted his hand way up high into the, into the air. It was just something you've never seen. It was great. And, so cool. and the, the wonderful thing was that the that all these dogs had been abandoned. They'd all they were they were from shelters or they'd been found lost in the streets. They were all considered unwanted by their former owners, and they became with the training and with. The, well that that is a great segue to our our wrap-up unfortunately we are out of time i want to thank you both so much for speaking with us this morning and i will put a link to the book on our website thank you and good luck with your book thank you so much Beth. this is fabulous okay goodbye bye-bye That was an interview with authors Cy Montgomery and Liz Thomas, whose recent book, Tamed and Untamed, features essays on a wide spectrum of animals, their behaviors, and ecologies. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett, and I produced this week's show which was engineered by Maeve Conran, and we had additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jasmine Sullivan. You can visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.